Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a master in multiple styles, including Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, Taekwondo, the list goes on. He is a champion and MMA pioneer, and he has a wealth of knowledge, making him one of the best coaches and instructors on the planet. Welcome to the show, the one, the only, Eric Polson. Hello, sir. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi, how is everything going? Excellent, excellent. Man, I absolutely love your teaching, what you teach, your methods of teaching, your flow. Talked about that the last time you're on. And honestly, one of the earliest guys that I remember being such a integrated technical fighter, especially in the field of MMA. What kind of led you towards integrating these multiple styles? I was training with Dan and Asano, and I was really, really interested in uh, multiple martial arts. When I was a little kid, I started out in judo, and then I got in a street fight, and uh, I wanted to learn how to strike, so I got into karate, and my dad said, oh, that's dangerous. You should get into a real sport like boxing. So I got into boxing, and then I started doing Golden Gloves boxing, and at the same time I was doing boxing, there was an Aikido class that I was taking on alternate nights at the same place. And then I was a gymnast at the time and I was fighting in full contact karate. I had always read about Bruce Lee's stuff and I saw my first Bruce Lee movie in the movie theater in 1976. That's how I got into karate because I wanted to learn how to punch and kick like Bruce Lee. And then uh, I went to the bookstore at the mall and they had Bruce Lee's fighting secrets and the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. Oh, yeah. And I just, st I started getting as many books as I could on all the different arts. And I was so interested. I don't know why I got so interested, but I was just enthused with all the different martial arts. And I really like the wrist lock stuff, but I like to punch. The judo for me was my passion for a while. My brother was a wrestler, but when I got in a street fight, I tried to grab this guy and hit a throw on him and... He grabbed my hair and pulled me back into the snowbank, and we ended up it ended up being a hair pulling contest. Oh, man. So, oh yeah, yeah, you had a long ponytail back then, right? Long hair. Yeah, yeah. So I've always been really interested and intrigued by all the different arts. And then the reason I got into fighting because I knew so much in different arts, I wanted to see what worked and what didn't. Yeah, I mean that's let's test this baby out, you know. <laughs> that's right. And I want to see what was functional and what wasn't, because you don't know. You learn all this yeah. stuff. I mean, even when I went into my first fight, I had a list of things that I thought I was going to do in my fight. Oh, really? Yeah, and a list of 20 things went down to about three or four. <laughs> Which is, you know, as people say, specialize in something. Another thing, especially going into uh, Jeet Kune Do, whether it's for striking or grappling, just the hand trapping concepts. That really, I mean, really opens things up for strikes, of course, and grappling holds and things like you kind of go into that side of training. Energy drills. Energy drills are like chi sao, hubud, push hands, and there's that all can be applied on the ground. So, like if somebody's trying to get a hold of your head, then you're passing their hands and not allowing them to get their hands on you, or if they're pushing into you, you you dissolve your energy center line. Everything's based on center line. And then the other was, you know, if they're crossing center line, take their back. So the principles all have a common thread and they kind of relate to each other. And that's the biggest thing is the common thread. What's the common thread 
with jujitsu and Wing Chun and it's centerline theory and it's oh. pressure. And, and when there's a vacancy of pressure, that's where you put your pressure forward. So if somebody's, you know, backing out or whatever, that's when you shoot. And it's same with wrestling. If there's a, if someone's not pressuring into you, you're shooting and pressuring to take them down and, or redirecting their energy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's been around forever for a reason, right? <laughs> that's right. Well, two of the oldest martial arts in the entire world is boxing and wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back to like the first Olympic games, right? Like Egyptian, days, Egyptian. Yeah. Egyptian days had depictions of boxers. Yeah. Boxing and wrestling. Those two are, that's why I made a, I made a jacket and a t-shirt and a hoodie series. It was called boxing and wrestling. It's America's first martial arts. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because that's what it really is. I mean, it's America's first martial arts are boxing and wrestling. You look at the mentality of both. They're almost similar. Yeah. Great point. Both grinders, you know. Yeah. Both grind them out. You know, and it seems like too, like through your pathway of learning and things that you always sought out, just the best instructors. You got some interesting Dan Inasano stories of training? Well, when I trained with Guru, I also got to travel with him. I was fortunate. I traveled with him for five years or so. And I got to carry his bag and assist him on seminars. And one of the big things, like some people that hang out with Guru or they're doing seminars, they don't really hang out. I just want to be around them. And I was always pranking him and telling jokes and stuff. So there's a comedic side to everything, but I also have a spiritual side too. Mm-hmm. And we can relate on both of those. I'm sure everyone that sat down with Guru Dan asked him about Bruce Lee. Well, I bet. Yeah. Hey, what was Bruce, you know, but I was more interested in Dan and Asano. You know, I mean, obviously Bruce was our, was the head of the system and the innovator, but, you know, Guru Dan was the organizer. Oh, good point. Yeah. He put everything together. He also helped with Kempo Karate system. He laughs and said he put the children's program together, but he's an organizer. So like when he's learning stuff, he puts it into a system so he can actually remember it. So he, he's really good at systemizing and organization. Oh, interesting. And thus, yeah, you can spread knowledge. Otherwise, just, especially we talked in the past about like the cat wrestling side. Otherwise, this is a whole bunch of lost knowledge, right? Yeah, it, it's true. And even like Yuri Nakamura, who is the USA Shudo founder, learned how to teach Shudo. He's in Japan right now. He had a health scare issue with his heart. Oh. And I don't think he can or wants to get on an airplane to come back because there's a chance there's a oh, chance that it can affect his heart when he goes up into the air. So the pressurization or, uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what I'm trying to do right now is promote the, the catch wrestling aspect of Shudo. And oh. uh, I wrote out a curriculum. All I did is extract all the all the grappling information from Shudo. And I've tried to formulate it into a training manual. And basically, it started out as 59 pages, like 60 pages worth of information. And I just got it down to 19. Oh, what's that like? I mean, it's all the calisthenics, the warm-ups. It's a, a lot of the old stuff. Some of the stuff I can't do anymore. Like, I can't do the back neck bridges. Right. We talked last time. Man, that was insane, by the way. If you oh. want to go into that, but that the, your neck. Yeah, dude. that's okay. The whole thing with the neck thing, 
I watch, I stayed up the other night and I watched the whole series on Vinny Paz, the Pasmanian devil, yeah. you know, the, the boxer. Yeah. And you know, he broke his neck. He got in a car accident. He broke his neck and the doctor said he'd never box again. He actually had the halo, you know, the halo on. Yeah. And he said, I beg to differ, doc. He goes, I'm a different person. You don't know who I am. He goes, that's not me. I will box again. And he wow. came back and he had a, a, an amazing, amazing career. They had a movie on that, didn't they? Yes, they just did that movie. And it's good because it gave him highlight. But, man, I watched his old highlights. That guy, he just yeah. his punching. And then, you know, it's funny. I was in New Jersey and my friends, we were on a seminar and we had the night off. So I went out with my friends and we ended up going to this strip club. And we were hanging out there, and all of a sudden I look across the bar, and it was Vinny Paz sitting there at the <laughs> bar. And they go, oh, yeah, he comes in here a lot. He likes he likes a couple of the girls here. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because I was like, wow. Yeah, I idolized. It was right there, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, Boom Boom Mancini, uh, Marvin Hagler. Oh, yeah. Obviously, Tommy Hearns and Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, those guys were some of my all-time favorites. Muhammad Ali, obviously. And, oh, of yeah. course, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson's my age. So I watched Mike Tyson from the beginning. I watched him come up. And the first time I ever saw him fight, I go, that guy's going to kill everybody in his division. <laughs> yeah. He's going to kill everybody. Yeah. yeah. Vinny was a lot like Mike Tyson, if you ask me. Same style. Fighter, yeah. just, just nonstop hooks. And a gas tank from hell. Yeah, it just keeps going and going. Yeah, I'll never forget when Tyson lost to Buster Douglas. When he lost me, I ran out of the room crying. That's the story. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, because it's your all-time hero. But the thing is, some people go through things in their life, and it affects the way you fight. So he's he had some issues, you know, probably with the ex-wife. Oh, and, yeah. uh, you know, he got in trouble a little bit with a couple things. But that plays havoc on your training and your psychological stuff. And then you got a guy that doesn't give a rat's ass about who you are and how tough you are and will be willing to stay in your face with you and slug it out. So I think that was kind of what was going on. Your situation with your neck, I think it's so admirable because like I said, otherwise it'd be a bunch of lost knowledge. Like most guys that would have gone through that, they'd be like, all right, I'm just going to sit on a couch all day. And it's like, no, not you. No, because that's how you die. That's how. Yeah. That's yeah. how your life gets shorter. So we we do martial arts to preserve our life. And also mm. we do martial arts to become a better person. And you learn martial arts because you're also training yourself as a sheepdog to look after people who are not so empowered to take care of themselves. Good point. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like, you know, respect is extremely important. And it's important to be honorable and respectful. And also, it should teach you how to watch your mouth, too. Yeah, that's true. Some people, like I said, like, this guy clearly never got checked in life. <laughs> Be humble, because because yeah. the biggest thing you can learn from Dan and Asano is humility. Hmm, interesting, yeah. I mean, you meet him, you're like, wow, he's so humble. And so just, you know, that's why him and I talk about mostly everything except martial arts. We talk about just normal things and life situations. And and I think that's different for him because, you know, most people that hang out with him, it's always about training. And then I try to talk about things that, you know, 
probably most people will never talk about. Well, you also, I bring it up just because it was such an impactful thing. When you were basically dying from that staff, you know, like if it enters your brain, enters your heart, like it's game over. And it was like, right, right there. And you had coming out of that, coming to terms and some. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was right there. Like I thought for sure I was going to die. I mean, I felt like I was going to die. I was a 12 out of 10 for pain. And the doctors came in, they called my whole family and my whole family showed up at the end of my bed. Not a good and I go, sign, yeah. They all came in from Minnesota and Oregon. And I go, what are you guys doing here? And then, you know, they all smiled. And I was like, what's going on? They didn't tell me till later, but they gave me eight days to live. Jeez. After my surgery, they said, we think it's in his heart or his brain. It was amazing. I was very fortunate. I had my family. I had my wife. But I also had, I had a lot of people that didn't know what happened to me because I because I just went off social media and I disappeared, and it was four months. So they were kind of hearing through the grapevine. But I said, let's keep this under wrap and keep it hushed. Don't make it a public anything. And we tried to do that as much as possible. But yeah, I kind of disappeared there for a little while. And I'll tell you, when I was laying in my bed in the hospital. I mean, I was in the hospital for a month straight. And then I was in bed when I got out because my back went out and I was on medication. I had a pick line and everything, but I was in bed for four months. I literally had to learn how to walk again. I had to use a walker. I couldn't even walk to the bottom of the hill. And then my friend came and stayed with me and he said, hey, I think you forgot something. And I go, I can barely make it to the bottom of the hill and back. He goes, take your time. He goes, but I think you forgot who you are. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, the Eric Paulson I knew wouldn't settle by walking to the bottom of the hill and back. He would walk around the block. He would at least start with a mile. And I was like, man, I could, I could barely, like I had to go lay down and take a nap after I, you know, I walked to the bottom of the hill a block away and walked back. And he got me walking around the block all the way around. So I got a mile in and then a two miles and three miles. Wow. About a week later, they still couldn't find me because they just kept walking. <laughs> <laughs> that what a great I mean, that's a great person to have around you. So when I was laying on the couch and when I was in the hospital, when I would close my eyes, all I would see was purple, like a violet purple. So I knew that I was being taken care of because I knew I felt the presence of God all around me. And I knew everyone was praying for me. I said, so you know, the last thing I ever wanted to do was be on my cell phone when I was sitting in the hospital. I couldn't barely just sit up and I couldn't eat because of the medication. It tastes everything tasted like metal. I basically lived off uh, vanilla pudding. <laughs> oh, man. Vanilla pudding is actually pretty wonderful in a time when you're uh, super hungry. And then all the medication that they would actually put it in my pudding. I couldn't eat food. Just everything tasted horrible. I asked Tanya if she could sneak in a piece of pizza and she did it and the sauce burned my mouth and it was just normal tomato sauce. And then I was like, how about, how about sneaking in a cheeseburger from five guys? So the doctor made me fast for 24 hours and I had these tests and I hadn't eaten and I had dry mouth. I couldn't drink water and they go, sorry, the test is supposed to be at 7 a.m. But now it's not going to be until 3 p.m. Oh, and I go, dear. can I eat or drink? They go, no. And I'm just sitting there. And you know, when you look at the clock and you're just watching minutes, minutes were hours. 
That's how bad it was. I was just looking at the clock, and one minute felt like an hour to me. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's relative, right? It's relative. To where you're at. So patience is a big thing. But I truly believe in the power of prayer. As soon as I went in, these two elders showed up. My friend's nephews showed up, and they prayed over me before I even went into surgery. Wow. They just said, we've been sent. We're supposed to pray over you. We're going to put our hands on and pray over you. And then when I got out, I had another priest walk in my room and he prayed over me. I had a Benedict cross next to my bed and he blessed it for me. So I held it the whole time. And then one time I was sitting there and I was really, really having a hard time. And I had to go through speech therapy and I had to go through all this oh, stuff. Yeah. And because I had a hard time talking because they had to manipulate my windpipe. Which had been crushed in the past, right? With the short show. Yeah, I had... Five, That's insane, man. five bone spurs, four calluses, and a flat throat. And I had a staph infection <laughs> wrapped around. And I had two wow. deteriorated discs that were shaved down to the tip of a pencil. So they removed them. But I had to learn how to talk again. And I had to do speech class. Wow. And Jeez. I remember I was sitting there and I was like, man, if I could just get like five minutes between, because I had session after session after because they're trying to get me out of the hospital mm -hmm. so they're making me do all these you got a speech class then you got this class so i had a lot of people praying over me and mm. i could feel the power of prayer but another thing was all the doctors kept coming into my room and i said why do these doctors keep coming in my room they were checking on me every day asking me my dreams my thoughts how i felt I was getting tons of shots of medication and this doctor looks at me and I go, why do you, oh, you keep coming in here so much? And they go, cause you're a miracle. Wow. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you shouldn't have lived through what you just went through. He goes, everyone that comes in here that is as septic as you, they die. And he goes, the fact that you lived, he goes, someone has a big plan for you. Wow. That's, That's what he said. That's what the doctor said. And I was like, hold on a second. I said, you mean I'm a medical anomaly? And he goes, no, no, you're not. A you're a miracle. All the doctors, they all came in and they all said the same thing. They go, you know, you're a miracle, right? And I was like, well, I think everyone's a miracle. And they go, no, no, like your situation right here is a miracle. You should not be alive. After what you went through, the odds of you dying were very, very high. Oh, my goodness. And wow. they just the fact that I was a fighter, that was one thing. Yeah. They just said because a lot of people give up when you're in a lot of pain like that, and they'd rather leave than fight it. Wow. So that was one thing. And then the other was I had great doctors. Uh, and the doctor that operated on me, I asked him, I said, have you been sent? And he goes, what do you mean? I go, have you been sent for me? And he goes, yes. That's unbelievable, man. And were you like that religious going into this experience or – or just reaffirm it or like no, um, you felt it, of course. Yeah, I, I've always been connected. I worked at a chapel when I was fighting in the beginning of my fight career. I was working at a chapel downtown L.A. where a lot of the people were spiritually challenged and everyone either had cancer or they were possessed. And Jeez. I worked there because a friend of mine got sick and... I was there and helped out for almost seven years with miraculous healings. We delivered a lot of people that had full-blown demonic presence. 
they had to go get therapy. They had to see a therapist. They had to see doctors. And then they also, one girl got diagnosed with like four or five things, manic depressive, multiple personality disorder, schizophrenia. Uh, yeah, one other one and bipolar. And so we prayed on her. It was 40 days. It was a tough one. 40 straight days, day and night. You got pray, 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 pray. You have to soak yourself in prayer and you have to have nothing but positive people around you. Anyways, game day, sister Josie put her down and she exercised her and I assisted and St. Michael stepped in immediately. And I actually used through the Holy Spirit, but Archangel Michael, I sprayed holy water in her mouth and a bunch of demons, they shot out of her and they put the candles out in the next room. And this lady runs in, she goes, oh my gosh. She goes, the candles have never blown out. They blew. And then the girl looked right at me and she goes, I blew the candles out. <laughs> and, and I go, I go, so what? I go, that's just a trick. Who cares? Yeah. And I kept praying. I was just putting holy water in her mouth and on her head and saying my prayers, obviously. And then they put a rosary around her neck and I watched her chew it in half. Oh my goodness. I mean, you couldn't even break this rosary. It was like a war rosary for the Medjugorje soldiers. She grabbed the thing and just knotted it in half and ripped it and just started laughing. And then her face kind of changed. It turned really white. And then she grabbed my hand and just started clawing and pinching me really hard. And I was like, okay, you're strong, but that doesn't hurt. You know, and then the girl goes, you know, my stomach hurts. I'll bet your stomach hurts, doesn't it? And my stomach was pounding. It was like, what? And, I, and I go, no, actually, I don't feel a thing. And then she goes, you know what? My head hurts. My head really hurts. How about your head? Does your head hurt? I'll bet your head hurts, doesn't it? Because mine sure hurts. And my head was going, bong, bong, bong. And I go, actually, no, I don't feel a thing. I feel great. But due to her suggestion, it was making, and I was like, man, she's got a lot of, demons in there or whatever That's they are great. yeah and it was just by suggestion it was making my stomach and my head hurt but you don't ever show them your weakness and i said no i don't feel a thing you don't hold any power wow that's yeah. wild man that was and, and then, the other thing is like what is that like you're in a room with that obviously the suggestion the power of that but what does that the atmosphere feel like it's oppressive and it's a stillness and it's like being in a soundproof room. Wow. That's in fact, in fact, I want to say when I was on Eddie Bravo's first podcast, we were in a recording studio and there was like eight people in the room at one time. And it wasn't a very big studio, maybe 15 by 15. Pretty packed. Yeah. And I put the headphones on. I was sitting there and I could hear Eddie talking and everyone's talking. And all of a sudden I go, Nyeh. and I just got up. And walked right out of the podcast and i actually walked straight out to my car and i went into my bag i have a travel bag and i had xanax it's for anxiety anti-anxiety yeah so i popped a xanax real quick and i sat there and i was like i was having a panic attack i felt like exactly oh, the same thing i felt it was a mixture of the sound because everything was loud and i had a headset on so i got my head got really hot and I'm sitting around everybody, and then they turn the air off so you couldn't hear it. And I'm sitting there going, oh. 
And so if you ask me what it's like when you're dealing with these things, it's kind of the same thing. It's like being in a soundproof room. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, you feel like I have one guy that I wor- was working on and he had over 70 entities inside of him. Ew. And And I went to these ladies' house and we sat him down and we started the exorcism prayers as we did it. This guy starts shaking and quivering and then he starts speaking gibberish and then he goes oh my gosh he goes what are you saying <laughs> and he started laughing and then he was like, started crying and laughing and then he just got up and we were holding him down and when he tore out just tore out of our grip ripped his clothes off and took off running down the road and then just was running down the road chasing <laughs> cop cars throwing rocks at houses <laughs> Oh my goodness, man. He's chasing a cop car. So he came back. They put a towel over him. We sat him down again. We tried to do it again. And all of a sudden he started laughing and he turns around. He puts his face right in my face because we were right in the middle of doing a exorcism prayer, power of authority prayer from Mark Hargrave. And then all of a sudden he looks right at me and he pulls his hand up like this. And I'm looking at it and going, oh, that's not really a, a good fist. And he goes, boink, and he punched me right in the face. (laughs) And it's funny because the ladies go, we give you full authority to kick his ass. (laughs) And I go, that's not why I'm here. Yeah. Well, that's easy. I could easily hurt him, but I don't want to. Yeah. I don't even want to. I said, let's watch him. And then he came in to the room, and he was just speaking obscenities, just vulgar, vulgar obscenities. And then just squatted and laid one right on the bed. Oh, uh, and, a little Amber Heard style. Eric, Eric, <laughs> you got full authority to kick this guy's ass. I go, no, huh. actually, we need to, we need to get the cops over here because he's fifty-one fiftied. Guy, the guy got arrested. And he was in jail for a couple days, and the only way they settled him down was they had to sedate him. So he needed medication. But I called my friend. I said, can you work on this guy remotely right now? He's like a theta healer. And he said, this guy has over 70 entities or demons, and he's too powerful for you. He goes, don't, you can't do it on your own. And he said, I'm going to instruct you to leave this one alone. So they arrested him. They let him out. And he went home, and he burned his dad's garage down that night. Jeez. How long did you help out and do this? Throughout my whole fight career. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah, it was ongoing because I had just different situations. But when I first started working there, it was to help people who were spiritually challenged. And then later on, it was to bring people who had cancer to be healed. So I worked on a lot of people who were sick. And we had some miraculous healings. Sometimes a sister would pray over somebody and they get slain by the Holy Spirit. Like we had a guy that had full-blown cancer and he was having seizures every 30 minutes. His brain cancer was so bad. And so when we blessed him, the Holy Spirit came in and the light went right through him and Guru Dan at the same time. As we were praying, she put her hands on Guru Dan and he fell straight backwards and I caught him in midair. Jeez. He just went straight back. He just went. And, And so did this other guy, this big guy that was getting prayed over, he fell straight back. We caught him, we laid him down and they were laying next to each other and they were both snoring so loud. And 
my friend was laying on the floor and he was snoring alongside of Guru Dan and they were down for three hours. Three Dude, hours. That's unbelievable. Like, because everything's so, at least modern times, so, you know, secular, mundane, kind of, you know, this is a scientific way to explain it or it's not real. And there's, I feel like mankind has been so much more spiritual in ancient times. And through time, as we got more technology and all that stuff. They've lost their connection to God and they don't think it's valuable and they think those it's outdated. And then there's no God-fearing people either. And that's another crazy one, because if mm. you really knew what hell was like, you would immediately start believing. And people think it's cool to go to hell. Let me tell you something. You're not standing and sitting around with all your friends, smoking pot, <laughs> drinking beer. You're getting tortured as you're naked. Yeah, that's not a torment the whole time. This is not the movie Little Nicky, you know. <laughs> I'm telling you, people have an idea. I've had five prophetic dreams of going to hell. I've also gone to heaven a few times, and I've also seen the face of Jesus like five times appear. And I've also had a face of Jesus appear on the wall, and then it turned into the devil, and he stuck his tongue out at me. Like, when I do stuff, I, I do things to help people, not to show you how great I am. That, that has nothing to do with it. I like to enlighten and inspire people, give them information maybe that they haven't obtained yet, you know, or make them think a little bit different, get them out of the box. Yeah. You know, open the mind yeah. and also to explore and not be a robot and create. We were brought here to create. And in everything. So, you know, whether it's artists or a family, a business, you're there to create, even like with your martial arts, right? Like you are a wealth of knowledge because the way you teach and impart the techniques and, and things like that, it just resonates at least a lot of people, me as well. And I think that's, that's what I get out of it. I don't get like, this is the way this is done only. It's how you use it for yourself. And this is the way to go about it. Well, I'm a lifetime student. I always want to learn. And for someone to ever think that they can't learn anymore, you're pretty full of yourself. You can learn mm -hmm. about everything. And you can learn from anyone, you know, like uh, let's say you, you're a black belt and you, you have this black belt mentality. You should always have a white belt mentality because here's the deal. Like maybe in your school, you're a black belt in jujitsu or, or taekwondo or karate. But what about this? What about when your car breaks down and you're training a white belt mechanic that you treat like crap and then suddenly you need that white belt mechanic who's a, now a black belt in mechanics yeah. to, to fix your white belt car yeah. yeah so or you know or you need to seek out a nutritionist and then you don't realize that you have like three nutritionists sitting right next to you and then all of a sudden you're having relationship issues and then you got like two people that training with you and they're therapists you know, or one hand washes the other, you know, like, yeah, there's, there's tons of times when like I go to this restaurant on a regular basis. I like this restaurant. And then I find out that one of my students is a waiter at the restaurant. So now I'm going to go see him at the restaurant and give him the business and the tip, you know, and the other thing is at the highest level of humanity, we are here, we're brought here to serve others. You know, we're not here to yeah. take. It's not about you, me, 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 I, I, I. You write your name down and put an equals behind it. That's what you do. Write your name and put an equals behind it. And what word would define who you are or what you've done? Wow. wow. That's it. That's it. So, and the other thing I say, 
I made a shirt. It says, I come from the into the I go. And then on the bottom, it says, the rest is just a test. So in the end, like I was really into ETs, extraterrestrials, aliens, Bigfoot, sea monsters. What do you call those things? Sirens. Um, what are they? Mermaids, mermen. Uh, I got into all that stuff, all the cryptoid weird stuff. Yeah. And it was my friend Greg goes, you know, that's all cool and stuff. He goes, but realistically, he goes, what you should be focusing on is being grateful and gracious to what you have and what you've been given by God. And then know and get your relationship close because, you know, life is very limited and it's very short. It's a blip in time. Make your mark. And then when it's time to go, you already have a connection. So you already know where you're going to go. That's what's important. And then amongst and along that way, you help people as much as you possibly can. And you work hard. You be diligent. You know, I, I wrote something called Balance. And I did it a long time ago for my fighters. Balance has to do with what's important and what's not. And if you keep them in order, your life will be in order. So the first is obviously your connection to creator. The second is your family the third is your job, and the fourth is your passion. So God, family, job, passion. So if you're putting your jujitsu before your family, you're up balance. Now, family and God go together because you should have a spiritual connection with your family and good parenting and assisting and, you know, seeing eye to eye and not quarreling and bickering over stupid things. Yeah. And laughing and having a friend, you know, your spouse should be your friend also. And then your job supports your family. So if your passion, which is maybe jujitsu, and you're not making money at it, and you put it before your job, you're going to probably get fired. Right. You can't get the family. But, you know, if you could actually make your job, uh, sorry, your passion, your job, then you can lead a pretty happy life because now you're happy and you're giving back. And you're teaching and changing lives and you're inspiring people. And the biggest factor for martial arts is to change everyone's life. It could be something simple or something very profound. That's a beautiful thing. And also, no matter who you are, like I learned this through the years too, especially as an instructor, but as a parent and you know, all this stuff too. You can't help but you're inspiring the people around you, uh, positively or negatively. Both are very contagious. Which one do you want to give? And I think it's a very interesting thing. And whether you're the, let's say it's martial arts, whether you're the master or the student, doesn't matter. You're still influencing each other for the positive or negative. And I think this, that's a great takeaway that everybody can create that sphere of influence around them. And then the other is when you're teaching kids, kids are the future. Most of my kids right now are starting to get homeschooled. So they mm. need martial arts. They have to have an outlet because a lot of the parents are pulling because what's going on in all the schools they don't want their kids around some of that stuff, you know, whatever's institutionalized there, you know, without even mentioning or talking about it. You know, a lot of the parents are like, you know, I don't agree with what's being taught to the kids. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to allow my kids to go to a school and be subjected to that. It's being yeah, it's institutionalized for all the kids in all the schools. And we all know what it is. It's huge. It's a huge push. It's definitely not from God. The CRT, critical race theory, like, why do you have to learn about that? Why can't you understand that everyone's your friend? And what does it matter what color or race they are? It doesn't matter. Love is love. 
you have an open heart, that's what's important. Exactly. That's what's important. And then also how you treat people. You know, you treat people like you want to be treated and be polite about it too. I finally got to interview Higgin. Higgin uh, yeah. Mr. Higgin. Oh, it's yeah. great. He's wealth great. of knowledge. Oh, wealth of knowledge. And I love everything's my brother. Yeah. He's really kind and he's super friendly. Yeah. I mean, if you met him, you would never know what status he was in jujitsu because he's so nice. Beyond humble. Yeah. He's, like, he's friends with everybody. Do you have any interesting training things that happened with you and Hegan? Yeah, I remember the first time I actually got to get on the mat. It was like 95. I got on the mat with him and he kind of jumped on me. It was funny because I was there and I was training in his class and he jumped on me and he started attacking and I started moving and then he started laying on me and I was like, what the? And he just got heavier and heavier and heavier and <laughs> When I can't move, I get super claustrophobic. So that's why I'm good at scrambling. And he was laying on me and I was farting out of every orifice in my body at the same time. Oh no. On my eye sockets, my ears, my nose, my mouth, everything. Oh geez. Just squeezing the soul out of you right there. <laughs> and I was like, how is he so heavy? And this guy goes, yeah, his nickname's the iron blanket. <laughs> Sounds like it. And someone said, what's it like when you roll with Higgin? And I go, well, it's like treading water in a 12-foot pool, and you got a bowling ball in each hand. <laughs> you're you're going to drown. It's just a matter of how long you can tread water for. I want to ask you this, too, especially with Higgin and, and Machado's in general, because it definitely did seem, because I know you were with, like, Horian and Hickson and, Hoy, you know, training with those yeah. guys. And it, I know it kind of butted heads to a point because you want to do some MMA and test your, your skills out. And I know about all that, but it seems like, cause you're not the only guys I've talked with and or trained with a lot of people that were with the Gracie's originally felt like a uh, uh, shunned out of the group for whatever reason. And it seems like the Machado specifically Higgin, he's like very, Hey man, it's okay. My brother come train with us. It's okay. It wasn't like they were lost. It felt like they were lost for whatever reason. And those guys are the guarding angels in the jujitsu department, so to speak. Well, so if it wasn't for Master Horian, who is so welcoming, I thought I was going to go there and get my ass kicked because I heard they had an open challenge, right? Mm, yeah. I didn't go there to challenge him. I, I wanted to learn and see what they were teaching. So the first private was amazing. He was super polite, and he just showed me a few things and, and very well-spoken. He taught me a few lessons and then he got me hooked. And then I started booking the privates once or twice a week. And then he no longer could train me so much. He started getting busy, but mm. he brought me in his house and showed me about the UFC and his whole plan on what he was going to do, unleash the UFC to the world. Like before it happened? Wow. Yeah, before it happened, he showed me all the newspaper clippings of his dad. And it was just super amazing that he was so welcoming and i was like wow he just invited me in and showed me history and i was so intrigued because of the judo background and you know boxing and so the whole fighting thing was kind of a big thing for me and then for me to hear that he was planning on doing that in the beginning and that that was like 1986 87 88 oh wow okay and then I didn't do my first private in Shudo until 88. I took a seminar and I had already been rolling for like two or three years in jujitsu. And I remember my roommate at the time was a blue belt and I came home from the seminar and he goes, what'd you learn? And I go, well, let's roll a little bit. So we had mats on top of our roof and 
we'd rolled in the living room a little bit and I ankle locked him. And he goes, what the hell's that? And I go, it's an ankle lock. It's an Achilles lock. And then I showed him a few, I think I learned 30 techniques on that seminar wow. and things that I had never seen. It was funny because it was an attacking system. It was catch wrestling, mm -hmm. but Yuri Nakamura was the most technical of anyone that I had ever seen with all the submission stuff because it was all an attacking system. It was positioning. So jujitsu was positioning, transitioning, and escaping. And at that time, the catch wrestling was just straight attacks, just multitudes of attacks. Some were better than others, but they're all based on lock flows. And lock yeah. flows are based on incremental movement. So you start here, boom, and then they straighten their arm, and then you twist, and that's lock number two. Then they bend. There's a wrist lock, and then there's a straight arm bar, and then you bend it, and there's a shoulder lock. They straighten it. There's another arm bar. So it was all based on incremental movements. I love that. Yeah. So I, anyways, I neck cranked, I neck cranked my roommate and I ankle locked him. And he goes, what are these? These are illegal. And I was like, well, they're still grappling. So why not learn them? I go, because I think you can use them in fighting. Uh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. So, so that's how it all got started. But it was that. And then I did a private, I was with Hoyce and Horian for, four years. And then I took a private with Hickson because I heard that he teaches just strictly ground. And I wanted to fight in Japan. Cause oh, I talked yeah. to him and I said, Hey, are there fights? He showed me a video and I go, I want to fight in Japan. Which had to be amazing. The world title. I was uh, the first American to fight in Shudo in Japan. I went there with the director of John Wick, Chad Stahelski. Oh, really? Chad is my training partner that later on became my coach. Oh, that's yeah, because he has that strong background in it. Yeah. And then uh, Dave Leach was my training partner. Dave Leach was one of Rick Fay and Greg Nelson's student. And Dave Leach, Dave Mark Leach is now 87 North. And he's also a director doing I'm Nobody. He's done so many Atomic Balan and uh, uh, bu a Bullet Train. Bullet Train. That's that was awesome. Yeah. Dave Leach. Yeah. So Chad and Dave teamed up and. I kind of wanted to go that route, but I was getting so many calls to fight at the time. And it was in the 90s. And then Chad just said, you're going to have to make a choice. It's either fighting or stunts. You can't do both. He goes, because you're not going to be successful because you're going half-ass. And I go, well, I'll always be in shape. And he you're goes, right. it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't matter. He goes, we need to crash cars and, and do burns and do high falls and rock climb. And I go, I can already do all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready not to on, go. Not on purpose. I can, fall <laughs> off rock, I can fall off rocks, not on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, what about horse riding? I go, I can ride a horse. Yeah, we do horse jitsu here. <laughs> so, you know, I was a gymnast, so I was pretty ballsy. And that, that works really well in the stunt industry. So that yeah, was you had your Bloodsport 3, American Ninja 5. Yes, yes. Blockbusters. Yeah. That's awesome. And it's cool when you see guys branch out. Like he went from, you know, the stunt man, the stunt coordinator, fight corner to like movies and stuff. And I think that's awesome. Do you keep in touch with those guys at all anymore? They try to, but they're so busy. And I don't think, you know, after I had my neck accident, Chad and I kind of just quit talking. I, I've texted him a bunch, but he's really busy. And I know he's got a bunch of stuff going on. He's I swamped. get it. Yeah. But, you know, like he was my coach and my friend. I mean, he lived on my couch for a long time. 
And we hung out all the time. And he was my training partner along with Damon Carroll, you know, Ron Balicki. All these guys are training partners. And, you know, Ron went into the movie stuff, still does martial arts and movies. But Chad just said, if you're going to be part of our group, which was called the STX group originally, and then he changed it. Uh, now it's 8711. Which I've recently uh, found out, they, like, why the hell you called that? It's the street address. Their address. I, had, I was like, oh, okay. That- Eleven <laughs> action design. Yeah. So anyways, I watched Chad and Brad hustle. He, he hustled his ass. He did all his research with who was doing what movie. And he had a board on the wall and who's the stunt coordinator, what movie, what the dates were. I mean, he was really, really doing all of his research. And I go, you know, Steven Seagal broke his shoulder prepping for a movie. I heard he was kind of shitty with stunt guys. Well, he goes, hey, Chad, let's uh, let's walk through this. And the cameras weren't on, and it was right after lunch. And so he grabbed Chad's wrist and wrist-locked him. And then, and then as he wrist-locked him, he started torquing it out. And then he put his other hand under his armpit, and he picked him up and dumped him. Chad landed on his shoulder, and he had a third-degree separation. And, uh, and so Chad said, this is my vision. Chad said, what should I do? He goes, I, I can't work. What should I do? And, you know, someone's saying, well, you could sue him. And I go, you know, if you sue Steven Seagal, you probably won't be working in Hollywood much anymore. I go, or you can bite the bullet for a year and come back twice as strong and everyone will go. Chad's part of the team. And I go, and then you'll become the biggest Hollywood stunt coordinator in the world because of your background, because you bit the bullet. And that was your recommendation? It was me it's telling him that. And so he didn't form any lawsuit. I just, wow. what happened is a little fruit basket was sent to Chad. It was not even written. It was handwritten by his assistant, like hang in there champ. So I called my friend. I go, you know, this is bullshit. I go, Chad's out of work for a year or a year and a half. I go, the least he could do is give him a fruit basket with chocolate and wine and everything the size of the kitchen table. Right. And maybe Chad wouldn't consider suing him for hurting him off camera when the cameras weren't rolling. And for what? And what I love what you did there is a very good guiding light because you basically, not just a good career move, uh, some might say, it was he could go, if you sue, that's the path mentality was of a victim versus not. And I think that, man, wow. that's Yeah, that's when... So Chad had to rely on his family to take care of him and look out for him. And there was even a time where he didn't have a penny and I lent him some money just so he could eat. And I just remember that time being super tough. And I said, man, when you come out of this, you're going to be a superstar. And he wow. just shot to the top. Oh, hell yeah. Did he coach you or go with you when you fought for the championship for Shudo? Yes. Yeah, he was there. He was actually one of the judges. Okay. There was no no judging because they broke the guy's knee. So it didn't go to a decision. I didn't have to rely on my friend to give me the right, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I got this. (laughs) He was there. Yeah, that means a lot. We put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears together in. And then uh, he went the the acting or the stunt route. And I did it for a while, but I I just chose, and it was Dan and Asano that took me aside and sat me down. And he said, hey, we're on a seminar in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he goes, I I need to talk to you. He goes, I see you're at terms with things. 
you're trying to decide what to do. And he goes, I'm just going to say something real quick. He goes, you know, it seems like you, you've had a lot of hardship in the stunt stuff and the acting and you're torn between that going Hollywood full bore or going into martial arts. He goes, but you know, the world could use another great martial artist that could travel the world and you'll get to see your friends all the time. He goes, you get to travel on the airplanes and stay in hotels and eat good food and see your friends and laugh and joke. And you get to train all the time and teach. Yeah. I I just want to tell you, it's actually a really good life, Eric. And you should really consider it full time. Wow. And from a guy who's done it, like, and obviously seen both sides of things. He was in the process. I was assisting him when he told me that. That's amazing. I mean, he's the one that swayed my mind. That's why I say he's my mentor. He swayed my mind and he said, you should really choose the martial arts avenue. He goes, I don't know if Hollywood's for you. Unbelievable. By the way, I can't get enough of your stuff. I have everything from BJJ Fanatics. I've been loving the STF. I, I tell my buddy before we do a gentleman's agreement, like we could do cranks and shit, right? Cool. All right. Can cool. you can you pull that off in live rolling? Yes. Um, a technique I've had ever since as a, I'm black belt now. Ever since I was white belt, I had started with the Carlson Gracie Senior, and oh. I would get from like you know like standing you know open guard shooting for like an Ashigrami, but I would do the knee reap out of that into calf slicer. We hug and. And I'm like, oh shit, he's belly down. I just uh, put my right. knee over and I get the face and it's, it's right. right there. It's- <laughs> um, you know, Carlson Sr., I was fighting and Carlson had uh, Alan go as he was fighting on Extreme Fighting 3 and 4. And it's so funny because we were in Iowa and I told Chad, I go, hey, Chad, I'm going to go out rollerblade and I'll see you in a little bit. Because I wouldn't run, I would rollerblade because I had a torn meniscus. Oh, okay. And it was easier on my legs, but it got my legs strong because I get down low and squat and I'd speed. And the balance too. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, I was a good rollerblader. So I had my track suit on. I had my towel around my neck. I had oil on my face. And all of a sudden, it was so cool because I like sprinted up this hill. And then this hill came down and it merged right into the driveway into the hotel. And then as I'm rolling down this hill... After I'd sprinted up this hill, I'm rolling down. I come into the parking lot, and then I'm coming up, and the sliding glass door just, like, opens just enough, and I come flying through probably about 20, 20 miles an hour. Jesus. And I and I kind of turn sideways, and I look at him. I go like this. Hey, guys. <laughs> and, then they, and then all of a sudden – Carlson like elbowed Allen. He goes, that guy's smart. He knows how to really knows how to condition. And then <laughs> later on, they saw me running in the pool. I had a kickboard and I was running. Real quick, by the way, I've been loving it on Netflix. There's a series called Sanctuary. It's about oh, sumo. Wow. It's super well done. They go through like a lot of the training site. Their story, of course, but I think you would like that. Sanctuary. Yeah, you know, uh, when I was teaching MMA and training fighters, sumo was part of our training. Really? Like for base? Well, no, it's good for the cage. I was training some of the heavyweights, and Chris Tutcher, he would slug, and then he would sumo the guy to the cage, get him on the cage, and then take him down, and then ground and pound him. And that's how he beat most people. And it wasn't wow. a fun thing to watch, but it was super effective. It's such awesome training. I love it. And, you know, it's like football. You start in a three-point stance and then go, and then the hands – 
the upward pushing goes under the chest and it goes into the armpit and into the neck. And it's all from your hips straight up. When they try to turn or whatever, then you can body lock and trip. Or if they rush you, because they'll rush you, you whizzer and then you hit an uchimata or a lateral. Like a, with the lateral, you let them on you and then you lateral throw them. That's awesome. And we I use it for cage. It's strictly cage work. That's so, that's so smart. You, that makes sense. You zap on one, two, and you need to get them to the cage. And then you just go sumo to the cage. You drop and go sumo with your legs wide and you run them with your feet sideways. Mm -hmm. And then when you get them on the cage, you go head in the socket and then you slide to the stomach and suck their legs out. Boom. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and, and we used to have sumo contests in fight practice. Draw a circle, and you go, all right, first got to get each other out of the circle. I'll have the kids take their uh, their belts off and tie them together and make a big ring. The sumo wrestling is a great thing for kids. They really love it. Whenever you, by the way, you mentioned earlier, you're taking from the shooto. You're taking like more the just the grappling side of things. So Rico Ciparelli was my wrestling coach. Rico sought me out when I was fighting a friend of ours. We have a mutual friend, and he said, hey, you have a friend. His name's Thad. He comes to your bar. I go, yeah, I know Thad very well. And he goes, yeah, well, I rent his basement out. And I go, okay, who are you? He goes, I'm Rico Ciparelli. And he started telling me who he was. And I said, hey, yeah, I fought a guy named Paul Jones. He's... And he goes, yeah, that guy's not that good. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. What are you talking about? <laughs> and anyways, it is funny and i was like wow this guy's really cocky i had no idea what his accolades were or anything and then he came and he showed up and he flopped on his back and i go how good is this guy he just pulls guard <laughs> and he just goes yeah my guard sucks so that's why i'm working my guard and so he was training at henzo's and what happened tom erickson was fighting in this event and tom erickson saw Rico because Rico was there watching. He said, Hey, would you mind cornering me? He goes, yeah, no problem. And then Henzo got mad because I think it was one of Henzo's guys that fought Tom Erickson. Oh, and Rico goes, you know, in wrestling, we corner each other all the time. It doesn't matter. He goes, well, it matters in this. Well, that's why I got kicked out of Hickson's because he said that, you know, there's a chance you might fight one of my guys. And I think he meant one of his family members too. And I, I was like, you know, I've already had that option, and I already said I wouldn't. Yeah. And I even said if I get to fight Henzo in the World Extreme Championship, I said I would take a bye so I could continue to train with you. I said I'm in as an alternate, and if I get to the final and I have to fight, I'll take a bye. Yeah, plus it's like you guys kind of know me right now. I'm not an asshole. Like, you know, I got okayed, but then when I went back to class, all the students were talking like, hey – what would have happened if Eric would have fought Henzo? And I go, that's speculation. I never did fight him. And I said, I wouldn't. So, and he goes, well, I just want to say, you know, my students, they keep talking. Now that you're a pro fighter, maybe it's time that you don't train with me anymore because you might fight one of my guys. And I go, well, what am I? Yeah. Yeah. I'm one yeah, of your guys, man. You also train at another place also. And, and I was like, yeah, I train at the Anasano Academy and I send all the students over here. I mean, I bring as many students as I can over to class. Wow. I was so heartbroken because, you know, I idolized Hickson so much. And I was so happy to be able to to learn the ground from him. Yeah. And then I would bounce. I would, because I was fighting in Japan, 
I started fighting in 1993 in Japan. They were looking for a shoot fighter for the UFC. And I said, hey, I'll do it. I'll do it. And oh, yeah, you all, end up being in the corner of them. What happened is they said, you can't. If you fight, that means you will fight my brother. And I was like, wow. well, what do you mean? Well, can I fight without fighting your brother? And they go, no, because if you get to the finals, you're going to fight my brother. So, no, you can't train here if you're going to try to fight on the UFC. And I go, well, who do you have as a shoot fighter? And they go, Ken Wayne Shamrock. So I had to look him up at the time, and he was in Pancrase, and we had the same record. And I was like, well, and then I saw a picture of him, and he really looked the part, right? He was yeah. big and muscular. Anyways, I didn't fight for that purpose, so I could continue to train. And then I fought in that World Extreme Championship. And again, I said I wouldn't fight Henzo. And then I come back, and I'm getting kicked out because all the guys are talking. It wasn't even Hickson talking because him and his wife at the time, Kim, both okayed me. I said, is it okay if I fight as an alternate? I don't know what the odds of me fighting. I, I went up for the commercial. I was a stuntman up for the commercial. Chad and I did the commercial. Oh, really? Yeah, we were <laughs> in the commercial. And that's all. And then they go, hey, do you guys fight? You guys look really well. And we beat out Ty Mac. You know Ty Mac? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, the last dragon. Yeah, we yeah. beat him in the audition because they liked our style and they go do you guys fight and i go yeah chad fights and then chad goes, no, eric fights i go no no chad just fought in japan he just point we're <laughs> laughing and then they go do either of you guys want to fight in this i go no way that's crazy stuff i was just here for the commercial <laughs> that's great how'd you happen upon hegan or vice versa well so i told you hickson came and met me on his bicycle after one of my fights, I, I still had a black ear and a black eye. And he said, you know, now that you're a pro fighter, you might fight one of my guys, so I can't train you anymore. And I was like, really? And he was like, yep. And I go, well, what about what about the fights I hooked you up with? He goes, well, thank you, because I hooked him up with his fights in Japan through my teacher, Yuri. And then I said, well, what about the green card I helped you to get through Guru Dan, he's like, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I was like, okay. Damn. I would think that that would have a little bit of pull, you know, like, hey. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just like, like 20 bucks. What about the movie parts I've been trying to help you with, too? And he's like, well, thank you. You could keep sending those. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I go, what about all the students that I'm sending you from the Inasano Academy? He goes, you could still send them over here. And I was like, but I can't train with you anymore? And he goes, no. No, not now that you're a pro fighter. And I go, well, I have been pro. So that was when I was fighting, and I was always going to get my private lessons from Hickson, and then I would ask him questions of situations that I had in Japan because at the time I was fighting, there was no face punching in Shudo. Open palm or just yeah, nothing? Just on the ground, no face punches, only submissions. You could knee the body from the turtle. You could kick the face from the turtle, but you could not punch the face. Hmm. And I said, well, you guys should change the rules. So kind of is unified and will match up. But anyway, so I was in the midst of my fight career. And the way it happened, it actually turned out kind of as a blessing. But I was really sad because I really, really looked forward to training with Hickson because of his skill and knowledge. I had a lot of opportunities in Hollywood at the time. And I tried to include him to help him get commercials or movie stuff. Did you see this commercial when he was 
I think it was for a lock company or something, a home security company. Anyway, so him and Chad got the commercial and Chad broke into his house and it said, maybe you need our security system because you're not Hicks and Gracie. And then Chad pulled out a knife and spun it and then attacked him and Hicks and blocked and wrist locked him, threw him and took him down and armbarred him. And he's holding the arm bar. He goes, if you're not Hicks and Gracie, you need our security system. <laughs> yeah, we helped him get that. That was one. And I, I had some Hollywood connections, so I was trying to help him with that. And then the other thing I was trying to help him with was, you know, to get him in Japan. Because when I was fighting in Shudo, they had heard that I was training with him and training with Yuri. And they said, would Hickson be interested to fight in Japan? We would really like to invite him to fight in Japan. I said, a match or a tournament or what? And they said, well, first it'll be a match. So I was the mediator going back and forth. And I remember he said, what's the price? What would they offer? And I go, I don't know. Let me ask. And I was like, this is 92 or 93. And he said, uh, 15 to fight and 15 to win. And then he goes, not enough. So they gave me another offer. So I went back, I fought, and they gave me another offer. And I came back and they said, okay, they're offering you 30 and 30. And he said, still not enough. And I go, okay, all right, all right. So then they said, listen, we're going to have a huge tournament. And we'd like him to fight in this tournament. And it's 50 and 50, 50 to fight, 50 to win. Wow. And he goes, well, I'm not planning on losing. So here's what I'm going to make. All right. Yeah, I'll be interested. Yeah, let's hook up the deal. So I hooked him up with my teacher and his wife. And we went to Cheesecake Factory and worked out the deal. And he got the fight. And he went over to Japan and fought in the Volley Tudo. I think it was Volley Tudo 90, 94, 95. It's in the choke video that he did. And oh. he, so he beat everybody in the first one, David Levecki and then the kickboxer. And so he fought. After he won that tournament, he went back again. And they said, we want to have you back for another tournament. And he said, okay, it's double the price. So it would go from from winning a hundred. So now he's paid a hundred, and they offered another hundred, I mean, something like that. Wow! I don't know a hundred percent for sure. And was he a big name before this? He was in Japan. He was a he was a myth, uh, not a myth. He was a mystical. Like how did they? Was, I don't think I know how did Japan even know about him yet. Because of the Gracie challenge, oh, okay. they talked about all the brothers. And then he brought Hoyler over for a couple matches before he went over there. Oh, like, oh, it was like a demo kind of thing, right? Yeah, he cornered him I've and then they did a demo. And then you had all these judo guys licking their chops and I would love to fight him. Okay, I got And he goes, well, if I fight you, it's a real fight. It's not, we're not going to do jujitsu. Yeah, yeah. It's not a gi match. It's us fighting for real. So that was the thing. So anyways, he went to the second tournament. He went over there and he beat... I think three more guys. He had a really great match with one of the Japanese pro wrestlers and the guy went to throw him and the guy was holding the ropes and Hickson got so mad. <laughs> and then the guy went to throw him and he did a cartwheel over the guy. He cartwheeled over, landed on his feet. And I was like, holy crap, what a super <laughs> athlete. <laughs> and that was the thing about it, his, his movement, his athleticism Totally athletic. It's totally athletic. And his balance and everything. And master of breathing. Yes. So you're a master of breathing. You're a master of composure. I actually got some training and certified through Alvaro Romano, the guy who was teaching him that. Oh, at the, time. Uh, the gymnastic natural? Yep. Yeah. 
that at the UFC, at the first UFC, and he came in and trained all the black belts, and I watched. Oh, really? I just snuck in the side, and I watched them do their workout, and some of the guys could do a little bit of it, but Hickson would, like, stud it out and did the whole workout, and he was actually an expert at it. And I was like, wow, Hickson's really good at this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. It it literally – he must have been working with him for a while, but he did the entire workout. I was like, wow, what an athlete. Now, have you since then, since the rift, if you will, talked to Hickson? Yeah, in tournaments and stuff. And I walked up to him and I got to take a picture with him. And uh, it was funny because I stood next to him and it was John Jock, Richard Norton, American Ninja, the first guy, Michael Dudikoff. And so what I did is I put my shoulder behind his shoulder and I backed up a little bit. And then he put his shoulder behind my shoulder. He goes, I'll never let you on my back. (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to take your back. I was trying to get smaller in the picture. (laughs) And I go, if I stand behind you, I look smaller than you. Yeah. If I go back here, I look small, but if I'm up here, I look huge. It's always wired in, I guess. <laughs> or we do that now, like, you know, you're good friends if you allow the underhook. Never. Well, it's funny. He goes, you can't change the inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. So Damon Carroll, my friend, he did uh, Wonder Woman and Batman and Superman. And he does all these movies, too. He was Chad's partner at 8711. Okay. And now he's he's his own guy. So anyways, Damon said, hey, Eric, Hickson's got a three-month seminar once a month at the Gracie Academy. You should come. And I said, I don't know if I'm in, invited. He goes, well, I'm inviting you. And I go, okay. So uh, I went in there. I showed up and I walked in like right after everyone was lined up and I walked in and Hickson turned around and all of a sudden he looks, he goes, Oh, Eric Paulson. I go, uh, hello, sir. I go, am I, am I allowed to train? I'm done fighting. <laughs> Cause he told me, he said, when you're done fighting, you can train with me again. So I was like, Oh yeah, I'm done fighting. And he goes, yeah, come on in. And it's funny. Cause I had a black gi on and yeah. most guys were wearing a white gi because of the Gracie lineage. Yeah. And then Damon goes, you know, you might want to wear a white gi next time if you come again. <laughs> Just out of respect. And I go, well, I just wore my gi. I don't know. I Because I, I wear white and black. I don't. Yeah. And, and blue. I have a blue one. Yeah. Next time I wear my white gi. But I came in and I took the seminar. It was great. So for one year when I got kicked out of Hickson's from 94, it was like 94. Then I started training with Rico full time, Rico Ciparelli and the mm-hmm. Raw team. And then Higgin came into my bar and said, hey, how's your jiu-jitsu? And I go, it's non-existent. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, what have you been doing? I go, just wrestling because I kind of got kicked out of your cousin's school. And he said, well, if I ask my brothers, maybe you would be allowed to train with us. But I think it was on the contingency that I could train there, but I wouldn't get any rank or be promoted. But you train. Yeah, but that's all I wanted. I just said, I want bodies to roll with. I need good guys to go with because I got fights and stuff. Yeah. And he said, well, let me ask. And so they accepted it. And so I that's when I competed in the 96 Pan Ams. Oh, okay. And I got a gold medal and so did Higgin that year. Two Americans. Wow, that's an amazing guy to do that. Yeah, so I did that. Then I just didn't get promoted again. And I was competing and still doing stuff. And I go, you know what? 
and all my friends and all my students were all getting promoted. And, and uh, this guy goes, I'm a purple belt. I'm more advanced than you now. And I go, well, guess what? I'm a golden blue belt. Top that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> you, know, you know, the belt doesn't mean anything to me. It's your skill level and it's also your attitude. Yeah. And I said, for me, I don't care. I don't hunt for search for uh, certification and then brag about it. I just want to train. I want the knowledge and the information with the white belt mentality. And I want to learn from everybody. I had one guy who was training as a wrestler and he just saw me roll a little bit and he goes, what belt are you? And I go, oh, I'm just a longtime student. And I made sure not to say anything. And then he's asking, he's like, is Eric a black belt? As I just got done submitting this guy like 15 times. I like that about you and a lot of other guys I've talked to is, you know, you're forever a student. I never stopped practicing my craft here. Well, and also just stay on the mat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just, with my neck, I have to be selective with who I go with, but, you know, I can still move around. I can still do all the demoing. Mm-hmm. And the demo, I like to demo. I'll do, I'll do the move like five or six times just so I can get it into my system. And then on a seminar, I'll do gi and no gi, and then I make them drill, but I do the drill myself five times. I go, next drill. Here's number one. Number two, all compound drills. I make it really fast. I like that too with catch wrestlers when they like do some sort of demo of some kind or instruction, and the guy's like tapping, but he's still hanging on to the lock or whatever. And the guy's tapping. Um, he's not letting go. It's like, believe me, the guy that's applying the technique right now knows the tension. The guy's good. It may hurt, but it's not going to break. Well, so I've gotten accused of that, but I said, first of all, my guys are acting. And number two, we are taught you have to put the lock on and make them tap. That was required in Shudo. It was required to make them tap. Required. And once you start, you I like you said this in some of your BJ Fanatics videos, once you start doing a technique, don't stop. Even if you like mess up a long way, like A to Z, like go. Yeah, keep going. Don't stop or don't reset. Is there anything else you'd want me to maybe plug or anything like that right now for you? I'm having a jujitsu camp in August, uh, ericpaulson.com. I'm not sure who the guests are yet. I know Master Higgins going to be there. I'm throwing a few names around just to see, but it'll be in the middle of August. I think August 14th or something like that. It'll be a three-day camp. Every year I have an annual camp and I bring in Jiu-jitsu, Thai boxing, boxing, wrestling, catch wrestling, MMA. And I try to bring in some of the top guys to learn from. And I want to do the same with the jiu-jitsu because everyone was so interested. So uh, oh, that's awesome. contemplating more so combining. So we'll have jiu-jitsu, we'll have some catch wrestling, we'll have wrestling, judo, maybe a little bit of sambo and, and wrestling. That sounds like a yeah. blast. Well, I think cross-training because a lot of guys wear no gi now they do the no gi submission wrestling yeah which i've been promoting since i was fighting but you know i've always trained jujitsu every week i had the role because i was getting ready for fights so like you know i'm sparring and rolling every single day except you know one or two days a week on my days off the thing is is you try to utilize what works best and it's funny because there's not too many people out there that can teach that were taught by one person. Most top grapplers were taught by a compilation of different people. And if they're smart and competitors, they're doing their research and they're learning from all different sources. And so now the leg game, leg lock game is the big thing, right? right. The, the, so that's why you need to go back to arm bars and chokes. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. 
Eric, I could talk with you all day, man. This is a super fascinating, awesome, and just uplifting. I just inspired talking with you. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show and catching up with you. It's always amazing talking with you and uh, looking forward to more. Thank you for your time. God bless you. you. Bye-bye. See you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.